0: You may be seated. It's beautiful worship today, as usual. I hope this was an extension of your worship from this past week. As we were studying essentials of worship in our class today, we spoke about how worship is really a lifestyle. And when we come into church and we sing and we hear the preaching of the word, And we give in our offerings and we fellowship. That's just an extension of what was going on in our hearts the whole week. Amen? So I pray that this was your experience the whole week, not just today on Sunday. And it will be an extension as you leave. And you'll be strengthened to worship Christ in spirit and in truth. Last week we did part one of our... Text on John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, and we saw this. The Holy Spirit is given to us who love and obey Christ. We saw Christ requested the Holy Spirit, and the Father granted that request. And the Father sent the Holy Spirit, the helper who was just like Jesus. That's why he said, I'm sending you another advocate. Anyone who was born again has the Spirit. As if, as if it was Jesus himself living in them. Because as Paul said, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Amen. And only those who have the Holy Spirit can truly understand truth. I'm just giving a little quick review from last week. The truth of what? The truth of the Gospel. The truth of his Word. The world cannot understand this truth because it cannot perceive him. It's unaware of the Spirit's activities, the Spirit's work. But believers know the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he lives in us. And he said, I will be with you forever. And today we're going to conclude with part 2, verses 18 through 26. And here we're going to learn of the Father and the Son's presence in the believer's life, and that we're actually united with Christ, which is revealed to us by His Holy Spirit. If you thought just the Holy Spirit lived in your life, or lived and dwelt in you, I want you to hear this today. It's not only the Holy Spirit, but we have the Father's presence, and we have the Son's presence also. We'll learn that believers actually have the very life of Christ living in them. And because He lives, we live. Also, we're going to look at how the Holy Spirit reveals truth to the believer. Another very important thing we learn from this text today as Christians, we're never alone. That's good news, because sometimes we do feel alone. He promises to be with us forever, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And with their presence in our lives always leads to truth by way of this Holy Spirit. And once again, the Holy Spirit indwells people of faith where love and obedience is a telltale sign of the genuineness of that faith. Let's look at our text today. John 14, verses 15 to 26. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not his it said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. In the midst of trials and troubles, your infinite mercy and grace grant us understanding of your word. And that today, God, we will not just be hearers of the word, but doers. We also recognize, God, that apart from your grace and your strength of the Holy Spirit, we would fail miserably. So we ask for your wisdom and strength. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Imagine you had a rich uncle who died and left you a million dollars. You think, at last, I'm a millionaire. And I always will be. Nobody can take that away from me. But the minute you got that million, it became subject to the rule of 72. This is a principle economists use to calculate, among other things, the effects of inflation. You divide 72 by the inflation rate, And that tells you how many years till your money is worth half as much in buying power. So if you got a million dollars and the inflation rate is 6%, you divide 72 by 6, which is 12. That means that in 12 years' time, your million dollars will only be able to buy what, $500,000 today. That's inflation, and the effects of inflation is that the money you inherited is only... There's always devaluing. But I want to tell you something tonight. There is something that never devalues, and that's your spiritual inheritance. Look at 1 Peter 1, chapters 3 and 4. Peter said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. No human effort or merit can ever earn salvation or the glorious riches of heaven for lost, pitiful sinners like you and me. Only those who turn to Christ receive a great salvation and an inheritance that does not fade away like money, riches, wealth, power, you name it. And Peter was speaking really here of a future inheritance, namely heaven, and all that includes. We have this hope of our inheritance now during our pain here on earth. And we have the Holy Spirit guaranteeing our inheritance And just like our heavenly inheritance will not fade away, the promises God gives us now will never, ever fade. That's his promise. Unlike money that eventually dwindles, these promises never fade but become stronger as our hearts grow stronger and stronger in Christ. And in our text, Jesus gave some heart-satisfying promises to his very troubled disciples who thought He was about to abandon them. He promised they would have everything they needed to carry on in this life, glorifying and doing the will of God. And these promises were not only for the apostles, but for all true believers throughout the ages. True believers are all those who love our Lord. You want to know who a true believer is? All those who love the Lord. And Paul had very harsh words to say people who don't love the Lord. He said this in Corinthians. He said, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. No, I didn't say that. But Christ said that. I mean, Paul the Apostle said that. Those are true believers, those who love the Lord. And the proof that they genuinely love Christ is they obey what he commands. Last week in verses 15 through 17, we understood that if we love and obey Christ's commands from our new created hearts, we have the assurance that the Holy Spirit dwells there. If you ever wanted to know, the Holy Spirit dwells in your heart. Are you loving Christ? Are you obeying Christ? That's a telltale sign that the Holy Spirit dwells in your heart. And this, once again, is the work of God by His Spirit in us that results in love and a willingness to obey the Master. So, my proposition for this text is the same as last week because it's the same message, really, just in two parts. And the proposition is this. If we love and obey the Savior, we have the promise that the Holy Spirit lives in us. What did Jesus promise if we love Him? Well, there are three points that reveal what Jesus promised his disciples and all believers. The first one, the Holy Spirit is given to to us who love and obey Christ. This we covered last week. The two remaining points are, point two, the Holy Spirit is given to us to reveal the eternal presence of the Father and Son. And number three, the Holy Spirit is given to us to reveal truth. Let's look at the second point. The Holy Spirit is given to us to reveal the eternal presence of the Father and Son. Sometimes we don't think this is important. This is very important. This is important to know that not only the Holy Spirit dwells in us, but we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead living and dwelling in believers. Verses 18 to 24 again. I will not leave you as often as I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not his carrier, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest Yourself to us and not the world. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. So let's put our imaginations on now. Imagine if you lived in Israel when Jesus walked the earth. And for approximately three and a half years, you were one of the apostles that he chose. You watched Jesus heal. You saw blind eyes open. You saw deaf ears unstopped. You saw paralytics get up and walk. He changed water into wine. He fed thousands, thousands upon thousands from a few fish and loaves of bread. He calmed the raging seas. Demons were terrified of him. He even raised the dead. You watched him escape miraculously through the hands of his enemies because his time to be crucified had not yet come. You listened to him preach and he taught the people with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Some of you even saw Jesus' glory revealed when Moses and Elijah appeared with him and you heard the holy voice from heaven this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him you began to see that Jesus indeed was the long awaited Messiah who was to come imagine if you were asked by Jesus whom do men say that I am and you answered you are the Christ, the son of the living God and Jesus told you flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven imagine if you failed miserably And you said to Jesus, depart from me, I am a sinful man. And Jesus responded back, not with hatred, but with love, forgiveness, and encouragement. You couldn't help but love Jesus. And you couldn't help but want to do whatever he asked you to do. You would have developed a deep love for the Son of God. You also had a deep sense of security. Because you walked with him three and a half years. He met your every need. He protected you. Imagine then one day you're eating a Passover meal with Jesus and he tells you, you're going to deny me. One of you is going to betray me and I'm not going to die and, and I'm going to die and I'm going to leave you for a little while. You and I would be troubled to the very core of our being to say the least, Right? Well, this is what was going on 2,000 years ago with Jesus' disciples when they were eating the last Passover meal with Jesus. We don't, sometimes we have to take ourselves and put ourselves back in that place mentally to see what was going on. They were troubled in their hearts. They walked and talked and ate and slept with Christ. And now Jesus is telling them all these things. And he's, going to say, he's saying to them, I'm going to leave you for a little bit. They were troubled, and Jesus knew this. And like a deeply concerned parent, Jesus promises his disciples, listen guys, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. What does Jesus mean by orphans? The term orphan here is, in verse 18, is figurative for when Jesus leaves, and when he does, the disciples will deeply feel that loss. And they did. First, the disciples and every believer are identified as God's children, not orphans. And that's why Jesus could say, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Jesus called his disciples many times little children. John the Apostle in his his letter, 1 John, called them little children. So that tells us that God considers us as his own, not as orphans. The term orphan here in verse 13 is figurative and carries the idea of loss. When Jesus leaves the disciples, they will feel that loss. And what Jesus is saying is he will not leave them helpless to battle their way through the world alone. Jesus had to assure them because they were feeling afraid of being abandoned. And throughout biblical history, God graciously reinforced his presence to his people. Since the fall of humanity, the time of Adam and Eve... There has always been this vulnerability to the feeling of abandonment or fear of being alone and helpless. And many of us have experienced that. Matter of fact, I think we could say all of us have experienced that. When Moses was about to die and his successor Joshua was about to take his position as leader, Moses told, told him in Deuteronomy one six, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, meaning the nations living in the land where they were to possess. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Listen, from the time of the fall to the present and throughout eternity, God never left and will never leave his people, whether it's Old Testament saints or New Testament saints. I remember when I was young, my mother told me a story when I had to get my tonsils taken out. After the operation, she told me... She came to pick me up. And I was sitting in this big chair. That was, must have been about three or four years old. I don't remember, but she was telling me the story. I was sitting this, in this big chair, dressed and ready to go. I wanted out of there. I didn't want to stay. I wanted to be home with Mom and Dad. Although I don't remember, I'm sure I felt helpless, as though there was the distinct possibility that my mother and father were going to abandon me. I also remember the first time... We dropped off our children at kindergarten. You would think we were murdering them with the (laughs) blood-curdling cries that came out of their mouths. Why? In their little minds, up to that point, they experienced safety and security. They now felt the possibility, hey, maybe mom and dad are not coming back. By the way, John Paul still feels that way when I drop him (laughs) off anywhere. I don't know why, but you know... But in their little minds, that's the way they felt. But listen, you don't have to be a child to feel, hey, maybe God has abandoned me. If He's here, why am I going through these trials? Why am I going through these hardships if He's here? Whenever you and I are feeling abandoned, we need to remember what Hebrews 13.5 says. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, there is a debate amongst the scholars about what Jesus meant, I will come to you. Did he mean when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, which is a distinct distinct possibility, or his second coming, or his resurrection? Most think his resurrection, which I tend to believe because of the, the context. In verse 19, Jesus said, Yet a little while... And the world will see me no more. In other words, Jesus is going to die. But you will see me when he rose again. Jesus was going to die and not be seen by anyone. When he was resurrected back to life, he would appear only, only to those that were his. He didn't appear to everybody. He only appeared to believers. They would see him again after a very short period of time. And Jesus wanted his disciples to be comforted because they were troubled. Knowing that their master would be back. But not so for the world. They will not see Jesus again. Dr. Leon Morris said physically, Jesus will be removed from them. And spiritually, they never approached him. The spiritually blind will not and cannot see Jesus. Why? Because they are blind. Paul told the Corinthian church, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And the only reason why we see Jesus is because God removed the veil that blinded us. And that veil is only taken away in Christ. So let's not be arrogant. Ever be arrogant thinking, sometimes we have a tendency to say, I can't believe that they don't see the gospel or understand the gospel. Because the veil is there. And the only reason why you and I see is because Christ removed that veil. If he did not remove that veil, we would still grope about in darkness. Make no mistake about that. Amen. So even though the world will not see Jesus, his own would see him. And rising from the dead back to life has wonderful implications for them. And he said this, because I live, you will live. As true believers in Christ... We will live now and forever because Christ lives now and forever. Death will not have victory over the believer. His his resurrection guarantees us that. For not just his apostles, but all who would believe the good news. His life, his resurrected life means eternal life for them and every believer. Death no longer has a sting. Death no longer has a has victory. First Corinthians fifteen fifty five tells us, "O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting?" And then John, Jesus said in John chapter five verses twenty four to twenty six, he said, "Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me, what has eternal life, because he lives, you will live. He does not come into judgment, but has de- passed from death to life." Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will what? Live. Because He lives, you will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. And He gives life to whomever He pleases. The Puritan Matthew Henry said this, The life of a Christ, of Christians is bound up in the life of Christ assured as long as he lives those that by faith are united to him shall live also they shall live spiritually a divine life in commun- communion with God, this life is hid with Christ, if the head and the root live, the members and the branches live also, they shall live eternally, their bodies shall rise in the virtue of Christ's resurrection it will be well with them in the world to come it cannot be well with it cannot but be well with all that are His. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. As a young man, D.L. Moody was called upon suddenly to preach a funeral sermon. He hunted all through the four Gospels, trying to find one of Christ's sermons, but searched in vain. This is what he found out that Christ broke up every funeral he ever attended death could not exist where he was. When the dead heard his voice, they sprang to life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And as believers, death no longer has power over us. Sin does not have to reign in our mortal bodies anymore, and we are no longer dead in trespasses and sin. But we we are now alive with Christ. Yes, we do physically die. Unless Christ returns, we will physically die. But spiritually... Now, if you're a born-again, regenerated believer, spiritually, right now, you are alive. Thank you, Lord. And forever. The only thing that we are dead to is the flesh, sin, temptation, the devil, and the world. That's what we're dead to. But we're alive in Christ. Sometimes, life can beat us down. And instead of living in victory, we walk around like zombies, don't we? We we act like we're really dead. Listen to this encouraging story. One day the reformer, Martin Luther, was feeling rather down. The Pope was after him. His colleagues were bickering among themselves. He felt this heavy pressure that came with being a professor, pastor, and father. And he was in excruciating pain from kidney stones. As he moped around the house, muttering underneath his breath, his wife Catherine announced in a solemn voice, God is dead. Luther looked at his wife with puzzlement and replied, "God is not dead." Catherine went on to say, "It sure seems like God is dead by the way you are acting." Luther thanked his wife and etched a Latin word on his desk vivid vivid means he lives whenever things weren 't going well, and luther wasn't was tempted to complain about them. He looked at that one simple word and was invigorated because Jesus was alive. Luther had every reason to be upbeat. And you know, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. We should have a plaque or something that says he lives. And every time we're tempted to act like God is dead, we should shout, no, he lives. And every time we're tempted to act like that, we should ask God to forgive us and look up and say, no, God, forgive me, you do live. The next thing we need to understand as Christians, we are united with the Father and Son. Verse 20. In that day, you will know that I am my Father and you in me. And I in you. In that day, after the resurrection and the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, they would have an assurance that Jesus and the Father are one. They will know the truth of the relationship that Jesus has been talking about all along between him and the Father. Up to this point, they didn't quite understand that relationship. Remember in John 14, verses 8 and 9, Philip said to to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and this is enough for us. Jesus said to him, I can almost hear him saying it like Oscar Madison, you know, Oscar, Oscar, Philip, 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 how long have I been with you and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? When Jesus rose from the dead and the Holy Spirit filled them at Pentecost, then they understood. They understood the relationship between the Father and the Son and that Christ dwelt in them and he in them. No human mind can fully grasp that mysterious union in the Trinity. But we do recognize its reality thanks to the Holy Spirit. The other amazing reality that his disciples would realize is is that Christ himself would be in them and they in him. In other words, they and all believers are now united with Christ. Of course, we don't become God They didn't become God. We don't become deity. It's not suggesting equality, but the closest possible relationship between Jesus and his followers. We are united with him. He is the vine. We are the branches. He is the head. We are the body. He is the cornerstone of God's spiritual house. We are the stones. He is the groom. We are the bride. See, that unity is incredible. Listen, there's no closer relationship than believers have with Christ. There is no closer relationship than that. Closer than our own blood families. And I'd like to paraphrase in my own words. Something I read. It says this. Many times we read in the Bible about believing in Jesus. Not about Jesus, but in Jesus. The Greek word often translated in is Ice which literally means into. We believe into Jesus. Believing into Jesus means there's a mystical union of Jesus and the Christian. What does that mean? Well, if we have this mystical union with Christ, that means we have it with each other. So, if I'm united with Christ, and you're united with Christ, guess what? We're united with each other. And this transcends all other relations. And that's why when we sin against each other, we sin against Christ himself. That's why we are called to deeply love one another. If we can't love for each other's sake, then love for Christ's sake. Back to our text. Jesus says in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Again, Jesus speaks of loving him, which results in keeping his commandments. And if we love Jesus, we're going to be loved by the Father and the Son. Now, this takes some explaining, because it sounds like, it almost sounds like if you read this, it sounds like we initiate our love for God first. First, I want to clear this. It's very important that you understand this. The Bible nowhere teaches that we initiate anything with God. Except our sin. Yes. Amen. Only God can initiate unconditional love. Only him. 1 John 4.19 it says. We love God because he first loved us. Romans 5.8. But God showed his love for us. And that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. God throughout redemptive history. Has always initiated his love. Toward pitiful sinners. Which include you and me. You can't honestly read the Bible from cover to cover and not see God always initiating love, forgiveness, and grace. You can't. Otherwise, you're reading a different Bible. Loving Jesus is the result of loving us first, which results in loving obedience towards Him. Loving obedience towards Jesus Christ flows from a heart that has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Loving obedience is the outworking of the Holy Spirit's love poured out into our hearts when we came to Christ at salvation. One of the things we learned last week in our adult Bible study, Essentials of Worship, was that worship always involves revelation and response, which I think can be applied here. God reveals His love towards us, and our response to that revelation is loving Lovingly obeying the Savior. And if we have a loving relationship with the Son, guess what? We have a loving relationship with God the Father. You can't separate the two. Jesus tells us in John 5.23 that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son, what? Does not honor the Father. If we honor the Son, God the Father takes that seriously and knows we're honoring Him. When we honor Jesus Christ, we're ultimately honoring the Father. And when we love and obey Christ, we receive the benefits of the Father and the Son's love towards us. How great is that? How grand is that? Praise the Lord. That both the Father and the Son love us and throughout our lives on this side of heaven manifest that love towards us. And I think as we grow in Christ, that perfect love becomes more and more obvious. As I was studying this, I almost saw this as a full circle. In other words, God initiates His love towards us by sending His Son to die for us. He gives us a new heart and pours His love into our hearts. We respond back with gratitude through loving obedience. And both the Father and the Son show that love to us more and more as we grow in Christ. You see, love starts with God. And we are the recipients of that love only to give it back. Another promise that Christ gave to his apostles and all that love and obey him is the son reveals himself to us. Let's read the second half of verse 21 and verse 24. And and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not his carrier, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Imagine that. God of the universe making his home in you and me. I don't know about you, but I can't fathom that. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Now Judas raises his hand, and asks a question. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? And as we go through chapter 14 in the Upper Room Discourse, we should take notice that the questions Thomas and Judas asked showed their confusion of what Jesus was teaching them. But we should also take notice that they felt comfortable enough to interrupt Jesus with questions. It's okay to question God as long as it's not done in arrogance, trying to manipulate God, if you have genuine questions, the Lord welcomes those questions. He wasn't angry at them. That statement, I will manifest myself to him through Judas, and I'm sure the rest of the apostles into a tailspin. By the way, this was not Judas the betrayer, and John made a point of that. This was a different Judas. Um, He dismissed the betrayer earlier, but this is another Judas. But anyway, their confusion must have stemmed from their expectations of the Messiah, establishing his earthly kingdom and overthrowing Rome. Or maybe they thought Jesus of Jesus' second return. In other words, Jesus, how are you going to return in your power and your glory with all the angels, and we're the only ones that are going to see it? I thought the world is going to see this. Or maybe they thought, Jesus, you're the savior of the world. And your good news is not just for us. It's for the whole world to hear. But Jesus was not speaking of his earthly kingdom or his second advent. Nor was he speaking of that he was the savior of the world whose gospel will be proclaimed throughout the world. Whatever their confusion stemmed from, they did not understand what Jesus meant. And Jesus simply answers this. Verse 23 and 24. If anyone loves me, this is... This is who Jesus manifests or reveals himself to. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's who Jesus reveals himself to. Those who love and keep his word, which by the way, was actually the father's word. Jesus on a number of occasions, give me one second. On a number of occasions, Jesus talked about doing his father's will and speaking what his father spoke doing the work his father did modern technology we should go back to the old bible right i won't have to lose my spot but on a number of occasions he spoke what the Father has told him. For example, in, in John twelve forty nine, Jesus said, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me the commandment, what to say and what to speak. So Jesus, and I want you to get this, for the third time links obedience and genuine love for him. Now, he said this three times. When God says something once, we pay attention, right? When God says something twice, we really pay attention. When he says something three times, does he have to hit himself with a hammer or should we really be listening? Those who do not, or who do love him, not only will Jesus love them, but the Father will also love them. Plus, both the Father and Son will actually live in them. In the Old Testament, God dwelt among His people in the tabernacle. That was the movable tabernacle. And then He also dwelt in the temple. That was the stationary part of the, the, the tabernacle where God dwelt. So here in the New Testament, believers, we are the temple of God. Revelation 21.3 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. If you are a believer, never doubt the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that they dwell in you and they'll never leave you and they'll never forsake you. They live with you. They're there with you forever. Could you imagine? I want to say this again. Can you, do you really fathom that the God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God actually dwells in you, is with you forever? When I was 14 years old, I went to Shea Stadium with two friends. It was the Mets, I don't remember what team they were playing, but we were sitting all the way up in the, the balcony. And Gil Hodges, the famous Gil Hodges. How many of you have heard of Gil Hodges? I mean, he's yeah. Famous, of course. He was the manager. Joe Pignatano was the uh, bullpen coach at that time. So we were 14 years old. I was maybe, I was with a couple of friends. Um, one of them is maybe 16 years old, this big guy, and we were sitting there watching the game, and they lost the doubleheader. And me, in my big mouth, said to the guy I was sitting with, the big guy, I said, imagine if we could get driven home by Gil Hodges, because they live in Brooklyn, and we live in Brooklyn, and Joe Pignatano lives in Brooklyn. So he said, that would be great. I said, well, I'll tell you what." After the game, let's go to the locker room. You know, the locker room, the, the exit of the locker room was outside the stadium. And in those days, the players used to come out. It, you know, we didn't have the security issues we have today. They used to come out, of the, you know, and then t- go to their car and, and the, the fans used to sit, stand there and get some autographs. So we stayed there and we waited. And we waited. And we waited. Finally, we were the only two left. Uh, Well, the three of us. There was hardly anybody left in the parking lot. Finally, Gil Hodges and Joe Pignatano comes out. I froze. I froze. I mean, I froze. I couldn't couldn't even talk. You know, I mean, a 14-year-old kid, Gil Hodges is walking in front of him. I'm going to have the audacity to ask him for a lift home. My friend became so irate. He grabbed me, he said, they were already walking to the car, they were just about in the car. My friend grabbed me, he said, If you, I'm gonna kill you, he started pssst, cursing at whatever he did, I got scared. So he pushed me and I made believe I was running to the car. Yeah, I said, this might appease him. His wrath. So I started running to the car, and they must have seen me through the rear view mirror. They stopped the car. I walk up, Gil Hodges is in the passenger seat. Joe Pignatano is in the driver's seat. He rolls down the window and he goes, what can I do for you, son? I said, I'm still embarrassed to say it. I said, can you give us a lift home? He said, don't look at me. He said, I'm not the driver. So Pignatano looked at us and he said, looked at me and he said, where do you live? I said, Brooklyn. He goes, where in Brooklyn? I said, West Eighth Street. He lived on West Third Street, and I knew that. His children went to our school. He said, Come on. I called my friend. My friend couldn't rip me. his legs. It was like the cartoon, you know, that guy with his running with the legs. He ran so fast. We get in the car, this is a long story, I gotta really shorten it. We get in the car and all I could think of was, What is going on here? Gilhard just serious. I'm a fourteen year old impressionable young teenager. He had his hand over the, you know, the armrest. His hand looked like it was this big to me. I was in a state of shock that I was actually in the car with Gil Hodges after a doubleheader that they lost. And my friend was interviewing him. My friend knew so much about baseball. He was asking me about Nolan Ryan, this guy, that guy, his ERA. He, they, they were going on. He drops off Gil Hodges on Bedford Avenue, and. Joe Pignatano gave us the riot act. He said, you should have never did that. He was like, I gave you a lift home because I knew how exciting it was for, for you guys, your kids. I didn't say a word. I didn't say a word. I didn't know as much as my friend knew. He, he was like interviewing him like, as if he was a newspaper reporter. And he said, you know, he goes, I did it because... And we said we're sorry. And he was gracious, you know, when he dropped us home. And Imagine, I was in the same car with the famous Gil Hodges. And Gil Hodges was in the same car with me. How exciting that was as a 14-year-old boy. I can't even begin to tell you. It's still etched in my mind. But I want to tell you something. How much more eternally exciting is it that we have God living in us? Amen. The Holy Spirit is living in us. He reveals to us the Father and the Son. I don't have to know a famous sinner. I know the eternal God from all eternity. Now that excites me. And that is etched in my memory forever and ever and ever. The famous one who will rule forever and ever. He doesn't play ball to defeat the opposing team and to win the World Series. He defeated Satan, the God of this world, on the cross so believers can rule and reign with Him forever. Now that's exciting, and that deserves an amen. Amen. And we have this amazing God living in us. And that's so the unbelieving world. Disobedience is a result of the lack of love for Christ. Jesus' true nature is hidden from the world. They don't know the Father or the Son. They don't have the Holy Spirit to reveal both Father and Son. Make no mistake about this, the world hates Christ, and Christ is not manifested to them or in them. Jesus is hidden from them. They don't know the sweetness of fellowship with God. They don't experience the daily grace we have. All they have to look forward to, as the writer of Hebrews says, is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume them. Okay, all that they have to look forward to is a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume them. Now you know what I said? <clears throat> that could change, by the way. Never let that put your fire out of evangelism. God tells us to go out and proclaim the gospel to all Living creatures. And that can change. The fearful expectation of judgment can change to a person. Now he has eternal life. Point one. The Holy Spirit is given those who love and obey Christ. Point two. The Holy Spirit is given to us to reveal the eternal presence of the Father and Son. And third and final point. The Holy Spirit is given to reveal truth. Verse 25 and 26 These things I have spoken to you, while I am still with you. But the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Up to this point, Jesus has been the disciple's source of truth. Now he's leaving, and he wasn't about to leave them without truth continuing in their lives. He was very concerned about that. And so another promise was that the Father would send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, in Jesus' name, to lead them into all truth. Now, we know in verse 17, Jesus called the Holy Spirit, what? The Spirit of truth. And I'll repeat much of what I said the last time to drive home this point. One of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to reveal truth. John 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. One of the functions of the Holy Spirit in revealing truth was particularly and exclusively for the apostles in revealing the inspired truth of the New Testament. In other words, some of them were going to, and their associates were going to write the New Testament. And I believe the immediate application of verse 26 was for the apostles alone. For they were going to complete the Bible. Because no one could truly remember all that Jesus said. He said a lot of things. But Jesus was going to bring back the remembrance so they could Understand what and how to write the New Testament second um, peter one twenty to twenty one knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone 's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the spirit, also the, the apostle Paul said, all scripture is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just like it was revealed to the Old Testament prophets, Moses and the prophets. It was revealed to the apostles and their close associates. They were going to append, append the New Testament. So Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, was going to reveal to them all that he said. And this promise that the Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance all that he taught them shows this the validity of the New Testament. They were not dependent on their natural ability to remember everything Jesus taught. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and teachings and the Spirit helped them that, to remember that. You and I can have complete confidence in, this, in the New Testament's accuracy. Yes. <clears throat> and there's more to say in that, but we won't. Secondary application is to us. I think the primary application in that verse was to the Apostles. The second ap- application is to believers. Dr. Uh, Kenneth Gengel says, in our case, it's assistance in understanding and applying the word of God. In their lives and ours, constant awareness of the Spirit's present is a daily uh, particularity. Another commentator calls the Holy Spirit the believer's resident teacher. He's our resident teacher. He's going to show us truth. 1 John um, says, But you have an anointing, or you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. And then 1 John 2.27, But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as He taught you, abide in Him. See, the Spirit illuminates God's Word to our understanding, which helps us in spiritual maturity. And apart from the truth of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit's illuminating power in our minds and hearts, we walk in darkness. Please don't be deceived. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to bring about salvation and spiritual growth in our lives. There is no salvation, nor can there be any spiritual growth apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and His Word. In this post-modern age where truth is what you want it to be. It's, you know, whatever you want it to be, it'll be. We desperately need as Christians to immerse ourselves in the Word of God daily. This is an article I read from an unknown source. In a Barner Research poll that was just completed recently, several troubling uh, facts came to light about where the American public is intellectually and spiritually. The poll examined several different beliefs and found that. Most adults reject the notion of original sin. The existence of Satan and salvation by God's grace alone, they reject that. It's also discovered that Americans tend to think that the core document of the world's major faiths, such as the Bible, the Quran, and the Book of Mormons, are different expressions of the same spiritual truth. And that by praying to the dead can reap personal benefits. It goes on to say Americans are nearly as likely to say that Jesus Christ sinned as to believe that he lived a sinful life. See, genuine believers don't succumb to false heretical teachings like that. Why? Because God promises to arm us with truth and accompany us with his presence, the triune God, Father, and Holy Spirit. We don't have to fear going into that kind of error. Let me conclude. Let me start off with a question and ask you, and then make a couple of statements. Do you want a deep-rooted assurance of the presence of God in your life? Amen. Well, if we love and obey the Savior, we have the promise and assurance that the Holy Spirit lives in us. If we have the Holy Spirit living in us, the fruit is loving, a loving and obedience to our Savior. If we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we have the assurance of the eternal presence of the Father and Son. If we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we have the assurance of truth. We don't have to fear being led astray to heretical teachings, which will condemn ourselves to eternal hell. We don't have to fear that. If we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we will desire the pure milk of the word. If we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. If we have the Holy Spirit living in us, his truth sets us free. And it is for freedom that Christ set us free. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your Word, truth. Truth does matter to you. But God, we also thank you for the Spirit of Truth, the Holy Spirit that doesn't leave us just to just read and meditate and study your Word without the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds. Help us, God. Take advantage of the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. Take advantage of taking your truth, the Word of God, and meditating on it day in in and day out. And to learn your truth. Help Sonship God as a church to be led by your truth. In Christ's name we pray.